Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. I'm a little bit sick right now, so I'm going to have a little bit of a hoarse throat for the intro. Um, we have a very special episode. This is an interview with the author Jim Christie, who was introduced to me by Ian Cutler, who did the Tramps episode um, a few a few episodes back. Jim was introduced to me as one of the premier tramp authors uh, living today, and he is a fascinating individual. I'm not even quite sure where to begin. So I'm just going to read his biography, author biography from Anvil Press. Here we go. Always in search of original characters and experiences, Jim Christie is a literary vagabond with few peers. He was once described by George Woodcock as one of the last unpurged North American anarchistic romantics. His publisher has called him a hip Indiana Jones. One reviewer credited him with a Gary Cooper-like presence. His buddies have included hobos, jazz musicians, boxers, and non-academic writers such as Charles Bukowski, Peter Trower, and Joe Ferrone. I never dismiss another story out of hand, he writes, no matter what it's about or how outrageous it may seem. Christie's often wry reminiscences of his travels, trysts, and trials are fueled by a hard-won pride. A gardener, a sculptor, and a spoken word performer with a jazz blues ensemble, Christie has been seen in film and television productions, usually in non-speaking roles, as a thug or a gangster. Born in Richmond, Virginia on July 14, 1945, Jim Christie grew up in South Philadelphia, a tough area featured in his autobiographical novel Street Hearts, and also featured in Sylvester Stallone's Rocky movies. Boxing was in the air, he once recalled. You knew people who had boxed. If Dickens had been around, he would have written about boxing. Christie later wrote about boxing as a business and a subculture in Flesh and Blood. Christie began running away from home around age 12, once getting as far as the outskirts of Buffalo. He befriended one of his closest friends and mentors, Floyd Wallace, a hobo, a former boxer, and a former soldier of fortune, and learned to ride the freights at a young age. Christie came to Canada in October of 1968 to evade the Vietnam War draft and was active in co-founding two short-lived underground press publications in Toronto. His first book concerned draft resistors in Canada. 
Christie became a Canadian citizen as soon as possible. While researching Rough Road to the North, he became fascinated by the life of Charles Eugene Badeau and subsequently wrote a biography called The Price of Power. Other outsiders who have struck Christie as heroes include a veteran carnival performer named Marcel Horn, jazz musician Charlie Leeds, leftist Emma Goldman, and explorer Sir Richard Francis Burton. This was a phenomenal interview. I feel like we could have done several, several interviews. Jim has really, really lived. He's been all over the world. We talked about riding the rails. We talked about boxing. We talked about jazz. We talked about the mafia. We talked about um, his experiences in in war-torn Africa. We talked about how he was with Martin Luther King Jr. at the Selma Freedom March. Jim has an incredible range of stories and, and life experience to draw on. So I really, I really hope you stick through this interview in full. Uh, we jump topics quite a lot. We talk about anarchism. We talk about Jack Kerouac. We talk about Charles Bukowski. There's a lot here. You're really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, please welcome Jim Christie. Thank you for agreeing to do the podcast with me. Uh, you're a fascinating person, and it's 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 well, a real I, honor to talk to you. I appreciate the opportunity. I think that the I'll just be straight up. The thing that I am most interested in, and the audience is going to be most interested in, is you telling stories from your life because you've got so many. And what I would love to do is just kind of shut up and get out of the way, and maybe prompt <laughs> you here and there for for stories. Um, and it's just there's so there's so much that you've you've done and seen. Give me a subject, and I'll. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So first off, maybe if you want to tell the audience a little bit about an overview of who you are and and your writing career, maybe kind of the, the summary, if you, which I know that's hard, but. <laughs> I'm a guy who was, um, who has always been a victim of the wanderlust. And that started when I was very early. Um, a month short of my 13th birthday, I took off to, uh, well, I ran away from home. I was in uh, Philadelphia, and I um, was so dumb. I got up to um, <laughs> Niagara Falls, and the water is there, and I didn't know. I thought it was the ocean, so I didn't know what to do next. But then I met a guy coming across the bridge from uh, Ontario, and he um, I laughed at him because it was in August. He's wearing... Um, a leather jacket and yeah, carrying a cane, and I was a wise ass. So I, uh, I laughed. He said, "What are you laughing at?" I said, "You," and he he laughed at that. And it turns out he was a Russian count who had been uh, his family had been di displaced by the revolution, and he had been wandering around the world, was a soldier of fortune, and now was a tramp. So I started tramping with him. And I did that for, oh, six weeks before the cops got me and sent me back to my parents. But this guy had a fascinating habit of picking letters off the street. This is back in the time when people wrote letters and some of them got discarded. And he would pick them up and read them. And I thought this is the weirdest thing. And um, he said to me, you know, 
don't laugh. These are the real pages from the sidewalks of life. Hmm. And he had, uh, he couldn't assemble too many of them because he was uh, traveling light and tramping around. But I later uh, started that habit and collected a couple hundred before letters disappeared. So when was it that you decided to become a writer and, and was that influenced by that, that experience? I don't think so, but I can't say for sure. I did not come from a background that was literary in any way. I didn't read a book, an adult book till I was 17. I used to, uh, I used to read the motor manual. That was a guide to, all parts of the automobile, internal combustion engine, and how to how they worked and how to fix those parts. So I used to pour over that. 13 years old, I would go to the library and just study that study that book. And um, yeah, so eventually I started reading and didn't stop. One day I've never read a book. The next day I'm reading Thomas Hardy of all people. <laughs> Maybe do you want to talk a little bit about your your upbringing from what I've read? You you grew up in South Philadelphia and had a pretty pretty tough upbringing, uh, and it's a, an upbringing that mm, I think people today don't can't really imagine I, uh, for the most part. Well, you know, I didn't know it was tough. I mean, there was plenty of fighting, but I just assumed that's where what it was like everywhere. But it wasn't. Um, there was no. Uh, like there was no sort of um, violence like has become popular on the internet. You know, it was, uh, you fight, you go in a new neighborhood, you have to fight to find your place in the pecking order. And uh, there was no drive-by shootings. There were no mass shootings. So it wasn't bad in that sense. But every, most everyone was poor, and it's a working-class neighborhood controlled by the Democratic Party, which was controlled by uh, what some people call the mafia. Mm -hmm. And in Philadelphia, it was. I used to think until recently it was the Cosa Nostra, but no, it was the mafia. So that um, that assured that there was no adult crime on the streets like there were no break-ins things like that boy if you would if somebody had broken into another person's house especially if it was a democrat <laughs> it would be a uh, really bad news you'd wind up in uh, the swamps in new jersey <laughs> so i was reading in, in ian cutler's book that when you're growing up your father actually had ties to the mafia as well and you, I think, witnessed a mafia killing at one point. Is that, do I have that right? I don't remember the killing. I witnessed a couple of killings around the neighborhood. My father was sort of, uh, I guess you'd call an associate. And he finally got presented with a request that he couldn't fulfill. So instead of him being taken out and shot, they um, gave him a new car as a gift, a brand new Buick. And he was uh, encouraged to 
get a new name, which he did, but he changed the name, but it didn't, it turned, it turned out it didn't apply to me and my brother. So the name was Christinzio. He changed it to Christie. And I actually immigrated to Canada with the name Christie without having to show any proof of that name. Just, it was habit and they accepted it. Some of my ID said Christie, so I was in. Was the mafia ever something that you were uh, potentially going to, were you potentially going to go that route in life? Well, from where where I was, it was not uh, out of the question. I mean, if you had, it's funny, if you had any kind of inclinations towards uh, learning more about the world and knowing about the world or uh, finding out about things, that was sort of uh, something that would help you get in the mafia. Not that you try to do it. But uh, they'd they'd see it, and you weren't just uh, some guy fumbling around on the streets and would never mount any more but a, a kneecap breaker. Hmm. So uh, I wound up. I can't get into too much detail mm-hmm. here. You must understand. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, I picked up numbers receipts and delivered them on Fridays. The number was taken from the last uh, three or four digits of the um, tote board at the racetrack. So there were $42,972 bet. (laughs) Those last numbers were it. That was your lucky number. So it was an interesting job, but then it escalated into something else, the protection racket, and I saw too many bad things. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So when did you decide to, uh, was it this around the time that you decided to go tramping or did did that come later? Well, I had gone tramping with that Russian count, said he was a count, and he had all these medals, so I tended to believe him. So I was doing that um, when I was 13, and then every opportunity I could get, I would run away. Like, I remember the very next year after the count, I ran away on a class trip to Annapolis, Maryland, and wound up going to um, a black show that uh, only white male there, a show featuring um, Screaming Jay Hawkins and Bobby Blueland, hmm. and a group that I don't I don't remember. And I stayed at a boarding house run by black people and nobody bothered me. And I thought it was great. But if you're running away from school in those days, in my school, it was three points off each grade every day that you're away. And I knew that I would flunk and um, I better get back to school. So I went back. That's the only reason I went back. And I was so dumb, I didn't know about quitting school. Now, I, I never heard of quitting school. I didn't know anybody that did it. It was just out of the realm. Had I known, I'd, I would have been long gone earlier. Then after high school, I 
I took off for good, not for good. I came back a couple times, but my um, wanderings would take me farther afield. And when I was uh, <laughs> when I was in high school, I would get a map and I would uh, get one of those um, what are not protractors, whatever. I would make a circle of everything within 250 miles of uh, Philadelphia. Because I figured I could go somewhere leaving Friday night and get back in town by Monday morning to go to school. And so I would start. So I wound up in places like Wheeling, West Virginia, Chillicothe, Ohio, Boston. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was fun. So what were those early trips like? I mean, were you riding on on railroads? Were you hitching rides? What kind of... I did some freight hopping, but mostly I took the bus because I couldn't depend on the freights getting me back in time for uh, to get to school. You know, you might be in some town in Maryland and uh, there's not a boxcar going north until uh, Monday, you know, so buses, I took the buses, which was when you're 14 years old, that's plenty exciting. <laughs> and what were you doing while you were, while you were out there? Were you kind of looking for adventure or work or girls or what, what was going on? Well, I was a little too young to get work or girl. Well, <laughs> uh, I was just ready for whatever came along. Yeah. No, I had a good time. I, I just went to look around and see what was out there, basically. If there were girls or whatever, that would, that's a, was a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember any of the kind of standout moments from that time or mishaps or adventures? Well, I used to, uh, I used to pick up newspapers of towns I was passing through. Like I was, maybe I was hitchhiking in Tonawanda, uh, New York. And so I'd pick up the local newspaper and go through it. Maybe I'd have a coffee somewhere. I'd go through it. So that if I got stopped by the cops, I could tell them, oh, I'm going to the game in Tonawanda. You know, it, has to, it starts at three o'clock, officer. I got to get there. So I knew that. So they figured, well, he's not just some runaway kid. Runaway juvenile delinquent. Hmm. So I know that stuff and be forearmed, as it were. <laughs> yeah, man, it was exciting. Scary too. What was the? 13, what was the what was old, the, you got no place to stay. You're out in the middle of a field somewhere. You don't know what's going to come along and happen. I would. Uh, Always get cardboard, because cardboard provided good insulation. So I could put that on the ground and sleep on top of that. It was a fantastic experience, which, of course, just made it more awkward when I went back to school, <laughs> because this experience was so unlike anything else that my uh, schoolmates were used to. This came particularly... Uh, Trouble when I we my family moved to the suburbs, which I hated. I hated every minute of it. Springfield, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, for the record, terrible place to me. 
So, uh, yeah, that's another thing about the mean streets of Philadelphia. People were much nastier out there in the suburbs. Really? Yeah, so that goaded me even more to get out of there. Hmm. But I had to wait until high school graduation. Then I uh, went down to Virginia, worked in a gas station, uh, decided to enroll in college because I thought it would be all sitting around all night drinking wine and talking about <laughs> Nietzsche and, <laughs> and there'd be beatnik girls and all that. Didn't turn out that way, and I got thrown out. So it just caused me to do more wandering. Did you know at that time that you wanted to do that for as long as you did? I mean, I think I read you were on the road for 30 years or something like that. Is that correct? Well, more than that, off and on. Okay. Like I, after that experience I'm just talking about, I went and I got a regular job. Um, six, one year, the longest I've ever held a permanent job. I liked it. It was with the Philadelphia Electric Company. I was sort of a glorified messenger boy. The highlight of my work there was being a sort of a bodyguard for the actress Jean Simmons when she came to town to do a promotion at one of the shopping at one of the um, what do you call it department stores. She was so beautiful, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe they made people to look like that. <laughs> And at some, and you were when did you pick up boxing and was that kind of interwoven with your your early your early days oh, as that well? Was, uh, that was in the air where I grew up. Everyone was boxing, and uh, I had two pro fights later. But I don't want to make too much of that. I wasn't a professional boxer. Some guy just said, "Put on these trunks, go in there. I'll give you a hundred bucks," and I did at the. Um, Convention Center in Norfolk, Virginia. I had the mosque in Richmond, Virginia. Hmm. But I knew if I ever faced anybody good, I was going to get really hurt. So I didn't pursue that, did, that did, line of work. Did those skills help you on the road? Hmm? Did those skills help you on the road? No, because you run into people who aren't... Um, Adhering to the Marcus of Queensbury rules. They're kicking and picking up two by fours to try to hit you and all that. So it doesn't do any good to block the punches, right? You block the two by fours. They had to fight the way they fought. Hmm. But it, well, I never found it all that rough out on the road. Getting off the road and being somewhere, that's when it got tough. Hmm. How so? Well, I don't believe I ever saw a bar fight. I saw a killing, shot, shooting in a bar that was owned by my uncles in South Philadelphia. But I never, uh, I don't think I ever saw a bar fight till I came to Toronto. And um, man, that was part of the part of the routine of going to a pub. There'd be a fight. It was new to me. There were some good fights, though. Okay. And at some point, when, when did I... So at some point, you picked up On the Road by Kerouac and developed a kind of lifelong interest in him. 
I was 17 years old, just short of my 17th birthday, and I was working 13-hour shift in some, it was called the Bazaar of All Nations in the Clifton Heights, New um, Pennsylvania. And uh, there were all these stalls, like you would imagine, in a, in a bazaar in the Middle East. And uh, I, made, <laughs> I made caramel corn. And it was a slow day, one, one Saturday on my lunch hour, I went down to the, um, there was a place that sold paperback books with the covers torn off. And these books were in bins, cardboard box bins, and uh, there'd be a legend over uh, each telling what kind of books were there, like funny books were laughs, L-A-F-F-S. Hmm. And there was S-S-S-E-X. And I bought a couple from SSSEX. And one of those was on the road. And I uh, I devoured it. This is my, this is my, the world, the world I was partially in and wanted to be in more. And that uh, changed everything. And he provides in that book quite a nice reading list. Balzac. I'm reading Balzac. It was, uh, that book had a similar impact on thousands of guys. Yeah. Um, most of which probably never went out on the road. Um, you've written a book about uh, the last days of Jack Kerouac, and I was just looking at that briefly before, before we started talking. Um, did you meet Kerouac or you just, he's a, a topic of research for you? No, he, I never, uh, I never met him. So I was in Orlando, Florida once on a trip. I was going out of Miami and I was uh, 18 or 19 and I got the phone book at phone booth and lo and behold, there was Kerouac in the phone book. And I was going to call him, but I was trying to get up my nerves to call him. But it was two in the morning, and I said, oh, I don't want to wake him up. And so I didn't call him. I later, uh, a few years later, talked to his wife. I once talked uh, for quite a bit to not his wife, his mother. Then later on, I talked to Edie Parker, his first wife, on the phone for a long time. and. She was uh, proposing that I help her uh, do a memoir of Jack Kerouac, but that never, I never came off. So you wrote a anyway. book. You wrote a book about his his last ten years, which are um, kind of generally considered to be a the, the decline. But you felt differently about that, and I'm I'm curious what your take that on was that a is. Myth. Like you see something on the internet, and then it's repeated and repeated, and it becomes the truth to some people. But no, he was, uh, yeah, he was um, drunk a lot at a time, but he still wrote, and uh, he did a, spent a lot of time painting. And uh, he traveled a lot. Now they never people never mentioned those trips of his last years. He went to Europe a couple times. He got uh, 
really got in trouble in Germany because he uh, broke down in tears at one of the Holocaust monuments. And the authorities had to cart him off to jail for a couple hours. For, for crying? Well, yeah, he was causing a scene. Disturbing the peace, I guess it was. How so? And, well, he was crying. And you didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't know that was <laughs> against the law. <laughs> well, it's like walking down the road can be against the law when it's called vagrancy. Hmm. So crying can be against the law when it's called disturbing the peace. And then also what bothers me is he died of a stomach hemorrhage. But everyone says it was cirrhosis of the liver. However, two nights before he was uh, he died, he was beaten up outside a bar, kicked repeatedly in his stomach by three different guys. And I, uh, I would think that might have to do some something to do with his stomach hemorrhage. But nobody wants to um, admit that because it was a black bar. Yeah. Anyway. Hmm. And you were also friends with Charles Bukowski or, or, or knew him. No, I just corresponded with him. Okay. And how was, how did that, that go? He was, uh, he was funny and he was a real prompt letter writer, man. You'd write him a, a letter and you'd get something back by return mail. <laughs> and we had, um, turns out we, had a mutual girlfriend, not at the same time, but um, I remember going into her living room the first time, and there on the walls was this big, he would make these um, huge drawings, black line drawings of uh, men chasing women, and there'd be bottles on the floor and bottles in his hand, and every bottle would have an XX on it. <laughs> and I recognized it, and I asked her about it, and she said, oh, yeah, we were friends. Well, in his book, Women, he uh, talks about her. He talks about going to Vancouver, and these women were made available to him after reading, and he picked the one who um, was less obvious. How so? That's interesting. Hmm? That's interesting. How, what do you mean, less obvious? He meant... Um, wasn't as uh, coming on to him as much, or wasn't as um, wasn't trying to be so sexy. Hmm. She was just being natural, and they had a thing for a while. And he used to um, send her plane tickets to go to LA and come back. But he, she told me that um, he drank expensive German white wine, and he didn't. He sh- she said, he didn't drink any more than you or me. Hmm. Yeah. So to go back to your, uh, to your own travels at this time. So when you were an adult and traveling on the road, was that, did that change over time? I mean, it must've from when you were a kid and what were you looking for as you tramped as an adult? I was looking for adventure and to learn stuff. I, uh, being situated in Toronto, it was easier for me to go to South America than to Europe. I mean, I could easy to take a plane to Europe, which I did, but uh, 
I was more inspired to um, be in Central in South America. I went to the Amazon three times in the 70s. What was that like? It was fantastic. It was um, a naturalist could spend a, a year working on two square feet of the jungle and finding new things. Uh, it's funny, three trips to the Amazon, well, four, later on I went briefly. I never saw a snake, which surprised me. Anyway, um, yeah, so I would uh, go to South America and I'd go to, uh, I'd wander all over Europe. I got some um, journalism gigs, which took me farther afield. This was the days when magazines would take articles and pay you for articles and pay you for expensive hmm. expenses. And uh, I took advantage of that little three-year, four-year window in Canadian magazine, magazines and went all over the place. I covered wars and uh, I covered fighting in Rhodesia, as it was, in South Africa, in Namibia. Mozambique. Wow. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's a lot right there. So, well, I was the most dangerous of these was Soweto in Johannesburg. It was closed when I was there. Anniversary of uh, big riots they had, so they weren't allowing any body in except locals. And I had uh, been at the office of the uh, Johannesburg. I think it was the star. And I became friendly with a guy, a black guy who would do laundry. He would come from Soweto, fill his, it was an Anglia, little Anglia station wagon. He'd fill the back with laundry of the newspaper people, take it home to Soweto. It would, laundry would be done and they'd bring it back. And I went in one night under, uh, under the laundry. <laughs> And I was the only white person there. I, mean, I think it was over a million people in Soweto. So that was quite an experience. Violent. There were uh, tribal wars going on all night. Mm. The hospital. I went to the hospital. And it was a Saturday night. And, there were, man, there were gurneys lined up with bleeding bodies on them. The Watusis would wait for the other some people of the other tribes to come back from the Shabines, as they called them, and uh, they'd attack them, you know, robbed them, and sometimes killed them. Hmm. Yeah. So I went to that hospital that night, started with a big ragged dinner, and um, there was a white doctor and a white nurse. Everyone else on the staff was black. And um, I was there for quite a time. Uh, 10, 15 years later, I was a party. I was at a party in Toronto, and a guy I knew just got married, and his wife was a nurse and remembered me from that hospital 15 years earlier. That was incredible coincidence. <laughs> And then what were the other countries that you in Africa that you visited? What were those conflicts like? Were you doing journalism on those? 
I was in uh, Rhodesia up by the um, Mozambique border. Uh, there had been a massacre by Mugabe, who was a so-called guerrilla leader. And his men had gone into this, uh, it was an Umtali, the Elam school there, and uh, brought all the students out and teachers out onto the soccer field. And um, they slaughtered all the uh, teachers and students, uh, not their students, slaughtered all the teachers. And they also had the, they had mothers, they had, it was a parents' night or day or something, and they had the parents watch the slaughtering. They slaughtered white kids too. Hmm. And the parents watched all this before they, they themselves were killed. So uh, that was quite an experience. So you, Terrible, terrible. That is terrible. So you, uh, you, you cover that? I mean, hopefully you, you didn't witness that, but you were writing about, you went to write about that? I went to write about that and the other, um, other things in Soweto. Yeah, I wrote about both of those. This is a really, to, go ahead. I went to Namibia, but there wasn't there wasn't uh, full blown battles going on. It's a beautiful place with red sands and beautiful ocean sparkling waters. Yeah, that's such a turning point in world history, uh, and and one that's not talked about enough. Um, I mean, this is in the seventies. Is, is that right? That second, see, the second anniversary of the riots. So it would have been. 78 I was there in okay. Soweto. So that's right when, you know, during the during kind of the last colonial wars there and, and the turnover to kind of the post-apartheid era was not far away. So that's kind of, that's such a critical turning point. What was your take on Africa while you were there? I mean, did you form opinions about what was going on? There was so much happening that... Uh, I was reluctant to draw conclusions, except I knew that Mugabe, Mugabe was a bad guy. And I used to sit in the lobby of the Meekles Hotel, which was the main hotel in Salisbury. And it was all full with reporters from the famous newspapers of the world, the Washington Post, New York Times, um, Correre de Sela. Uh, the London papers and um, those guys never went out in the field as far as I knew they would um, the waiter would come over he was in a white jacket he'd come and serve drinks and he'd say something like yeah I heard that uh, Mugabe's troops are going to move on a certain place tomorrow and that story would be in the New York Times as a source close to rebel leader Mugabe said it wasn't exactly uh, accurate reporting. And also, they would do every morning at 10 o'clock, everyone would troop over to the Ministry of Information where the military liaison officer, whose name was Colonel Gates, would uh, give out this propaganda. And they would, the right the reporters of the Western papers would go home, would go back to the hotel and rewrite it from another political perspective. 
in from what political perspective? I mean, how did they change it? And what did they, they change made, it from? They made Mugabe out to be hero. They made, um, they um, emphasized the racial divide. And there was, but it wasn't like uh, in South Africa. So, um, they made it more, if you'll pardon the expression, black and white. Hmm. And he raised this terrible man up as a hero, Mugabe. And then he later became a president of then Zimbabwe. Yeah, for what, 30 years. Hmm. He only died a couple of years ago, I think. I hate I hate to focus in on it sometimes because of the gruesome scenes I witnessed. Hmm. I wrote an article about Rhodesia for the Canadian magazine that it sent me that had all these photographs. And um, they, um, I went in the office one day and one of the editorial assistants showed me the mock-up of the article I had done. And of course they had um, edited so much to change the perspective of what I saw. And um, they had photos illustrated, they had the photos that illustrated the article that they wanted to use showed police with Alsatian German Shepherd's dog, fags bared, just about to descend on their children. And uh, I went in, I stormed into the office and to the editor and I said, this is, you, you, let, you rewrote that, you had no right to do it, and you're going to be laughing stock because those cops, South African cops, and you're trying to pass it off as uh, Rhodesia. Hmm. How do you feel about all that now looking back with how everything has gone um, in Africa and the way that and where it's at now? I mean, do you do you think I'm, I don't want to focus on this too much more if it's upsetting, but that's kind of my last question about it. I had a friend of mine here whose wife is uh, South African and they go back now and again less frequently over the years because of how bad it is. He said that um, they, um, they're in Cape Town. They couldn't, they couldn't leave the hotel hmm. unless they had some kind of limo or something. It's that bad. Crime is that bad. So, and I'm a guy who had been in Selma, Alabama. You know that? You know about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. March uh, 1965. And uh, I saw, there's Martin Luther King going to, went to go to Montgomery and the cops came down and they beat people who were with uh, him. And um, they took a bunch of us to jail and they herded maybe 40 of us in cell made for 10, a pen made for 10. and. Uh, I remember looking out the windows, the barred windows in the back of the cell, and uh, the paddy wagon comes up, and they haul this large black woman out of the back, and she tumbles to the ground and start beating her with clubs. <laughs> and uh, so we start hollering the people in, in the cells, black and white, and the ones whose hands 
were around the finger, hands were around the bars in the front. The cops would come by with the clubs and beat their hands. Hmm. and swing like baseball bats to these people's hands. Oh. What was the attitude of people in, I mean, what was the attitude of people towards the civil rights marches? I mean, that's, it's such a rare, rare opportunity to talk to somebody who's been that involved in history. Um, so I want to focus on this too. I mean, like, why did you participate and what was the reaction of, you know, what was it like participating? Uh, what was Martin Luther King like? And what was the reaction to, of, of kind of white America around you? Well, white America was basically anti-black. And um, the hatred of white people against black, it's unbelievable now. It still goes on, obviously. Look at the papers. But uh, well, that's an old-fashioned thing to say, and they look at the papers. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you could see it's in there. It's... No offense, but I think it's in the blood for a lot of Americans. And I was in the blood of my parents, my grandparents. And um, there's no way to avoid it. You just have to hope that enough time passes that that black blood, if you'll pardon the expression, passes. Why, bad blood. Why do you think that bad blood is there? Well, slavery. Yeah. Meaning it's kind of the the survival of the attitude of, of slave owners or it's re, going the opposite way of feeling guilty about it or, or what? No, it's I think it, I, there's some guilt feelings, of course, but that's um, that doesn't compare to the uh, ingrained hatred that's been there for 400 years. Were you able to meet Martin Luther King? I saw him up close. What I, my major impression of him was how short he was. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Funny to be so superficial, but you figure got people like that to be a giant. But um, he's about five foot five. And he, was he uh, as char charismatic in person as, as history remembers him? Well, I didn't see him making a speech. So okay. he was just standing there waiting to were his group so they could cross that bridge there that would lead to uh, Montgomery. So why did you... I saw a guy there who later I realized was Jesse Jackson, who, who was very tall and thin. I later used to see him at boxing matches in Las Vegas. Jackson, that is. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up in that situation? And did you, did you intentionally join uh, that march? I um, I thought it was wrong, and I wondered if I could help in any way. In my naive way, I thought I could help. So I went down to Selma. And, of course, I, I participated elsewhere, too. But um, I have a um, weird perspective on all that late 60s stuff. I think... Um, Protests became nothing more than, uh, well, I wrote a book. My first book was called Beyond the Spectacle. It was based on an essay I did as a, or the first edition of an underground newspaper out of Toronto. My theory was that the media set up these spectacles 
for people to participate in, and then you could go and f- participate and feel that you've been doing something. Mm-hmm. When actually you've been becoming puppets for the evening news, protesting, carrying the sign, people in their um, chairs in the living rooms and Sandusky, Ohio could rant and rave about against the um, hippies. And do you think that's still the case now? Well, I'm not aware so much of any mass protest movements. I think it's a whole different ballgame now. I think um, there's a lot less freedom now. And uh, there's so much chatter. You could say anything you want on the internet. So it siphons off. It's like a tea kettle siphoning off the steam. Hmm. One thing I definitely want to ask you about now that you've mentioned um, your your first book is your interest in anarchism. When did that start and what, what drew you to that? Of course, anarchism is a bad word, right? But my take, what I'm interested in is the philosophical aspect of it. And um, I realized, I thought it might actually happen during my life. Um, when I was a kid, I thought it, but now, now, of course, it's just something out on the horizon that it would be great if it happened, but it ain't. Um, it just seemed to make more sense than, well, obviously capitalism and obviously communism. What is your definition of, of anarchism for you? Anarchism is not chaos like people claim. Um, it's not total lack of order. It's uh, organizing society without exerting will on anyone. Like being authoritative. Of course, nowadays, it seems, uh, I mean, who would try to set up a society? Well, the Wobblies used to have a saying about setting up the create the new society in the shell of the old, which is a great idea. But now, with all the consumerism and random violence, vicarious relationships, I, I, it's, it's depressing to think about. Hmm. Boy, I'm getting depressed there between Mozambique <laughs> and, and, Mozambique right, and well. this. <laughs> what what are that let's uh let's change uh gears then what would a more uh positive thing to talk about be from your your mini adventures well i met so many great people within um four or five years in the 60s from 64 to 69 or 70 i met people who uh, unlike of course, unlike anything, anybody I had met, I was young, but are still unlike anybody else I've met since. I met a guy called Floyd Wallace, an old um, hobo who was um, an adventurer. He had fought for left-wing causes around the world. He was in the Spanish Civil War. I love the 
idea of the Spanish Civil War, so I was eager to hear everything about it. And uh, he was an IWW guy, like I said. And um, he knew all these people that were legends to me. He had known, he had met Emma Goldman, hmm. which I thought was just unbelievable. She was like a mythological character to me. Yeah, he had uh, adventured all around the world. And we parted company after several weeks. I went with him, by the way, 1964 to the Hobo Convention in Britt, Iowa. You know about the Hobo Convention? I do not. What? What is? <laughs> please tell me about that. It's been a convention of hobos that's been in existence since 1903. People go to Brit. And it used to be all legitimate hobos. Now it's it's so difficult to ride freight trains. It's become a fad now with punk rockers to get on a freight train and tag it. But back then it was legitimate hobos who opened up the West and people overlooked that. It was, they were hobos from migrant workers. They weren't bums. Hmm. They would follow the harvest and the planting schedule. So their presence in the West enabled the farmers to uh, grow crops, to grow acres of crops. Because hmm. if they weren't for the hobos, no one would pick that fruit, harvest that corn. So they would go from, uh, they'd go there and they'd go out to, uh, Oregon, Washington, to pick the apples. And there's work to be found. Mm. So I met a lot of those people. I once was traveling around, rode a freight. I was in Kansas City, had a greasy spoon down by the uh, stockyards, went in for a cup of coffee, and the place was so crowded the guy behind the counter, he was, he was running off his feet if he had run, space to run. He could, I mean, he was cooking all the meals. He had waiting on the counter. He was doing everything. And he was harassed and sweating and everything. And I, I can't believe I did this, but I stood up and went behind the counter and started helping him. And he just nodded at me. I wound up staying there nearly three weeks. But the reason I mention this, is because the people that went in there were great. There were old wobblies, uh, uh, vagabonds, all sorts of variety of hobos, all sorts of political radicals. It was fantastic. It was like something I might have dreamed up hmm. if I had been back home thinking about going traveling and finding some place where there's all this wonderful stuff going on, all these wonderful people meeting. That was the place. Yeah, that was a good experience. Hmm. Yeah, so the next, uh, so then I go and I meet, uh, I got married. I'm, somebody picked me up, hitchhiking, and I married her. And then I, um, I met a great guy, probably the only genius I've ever met, Charlie Leeds. He was a, bass player, jazz bass player, much older than me. His jazz career dated back to the, his bass player of the bands of uh, Woody Herman and Stan Getz and people like that. 
junky jazz, great junky jazz musician, and a genius writer. To this day, I've never read anything funnier. So he had an influence on me, although not with the junk. <laughs> so you spent, you ended up spending quite a lot of time around the jazz scene. Oh, well, that was my music. And uh, I was lucky enough to be in Toronto at a time when there was so much jazz and it was all free. And New York, which people think is a center of jazz, you, if you wanted to hear a big name or even a medium-type name, you had to pay a cover charge and there was a drink minimum. So in 1971, you're paying $40 before you even sit down and hear music. <laughs> and Toronto was free. No, rarely a cover charge and never a drink minimum. So I heard everybody in Toronto. I heard Miles Davis, Art Pepper, Bill Evans. Oh, man, Helen Hume, everybody. It's great. And I'd sit down and I'd think, wait, am I, am I ever lucky to have this at my uh, fingertips? And I then thought, I never thought, well, this won't last. Never thought of that. I thought it would last. Hmm. But the economy put paid to that. But I was glad I was there at the time. And also in Toronto, Corner bars in the west part of town. I had country, live country music every night. And I liked country music. So it was a musical heaven for me being there in Toronto then. You ever been up there? I've, I lived in Vancouver for a year, but I've never been to Toronto. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a lot different from the U.S. I think they try to keep Vancouver secret from the, the U.S. So we don't know that there's a functional society on the same continent as us. It's a function of society as warm, temperate climate. You know, it's got, when I first moved out to Vancouver from Toronto, I was walking down a seawalk at uh, two thirty in the afternoon in the middle of February, and here's a guy walking around. He's looking up at the air. His arms spread out, and he's he looked totally amazed. And he sees me. He says, "Do you live here?" I said, "Yeah." He says, "Is it always like this?" And I said, yeah, which is not, but I told him that. <laughs> he couldn't believe that it would be that warm in February. Mm -hmm. So people there. who uh, get an inkling of that being at least partly part-time true, they flood out here. This place where I live, a, a peninsula off the mainland, you got to take a ferry to get to the main mainland, Vancouver, for instance. Um, this is, uh, it's expensive, but it's unbelievably beautiful. I'm looking out right now in mountains. Yeah. And people come here and they, it's driven the prices up. They immediately go and try to find some place to buy. Mm -hmm. But of course you can buy a little house here for a million dollars. Yeah. When I was talking to Ian Cutler, one of the things that he brought up is that kind of the tramping lifestyle is not possible anymore. And he was lamenting the loss of freedom uh, and to, to a degree that people are not even aware of. Do you feel the same way that tramping is a thing of Definitely. the past? You do? Definitely. Okay. I think I mentioned before that I, there's less freedom now. Yeah. And um, 
three and a half years ago, I hitchhiked from here, the Pacific Ocean, to the Atlantic in Labrador. And um, it was so expensive. The cheapest accommodation I found on the whole trip was a bed, an awful single bed in a hostel in Halifax. Uh, you had to share the room with five other people, and they wanted 90 bucks for this. And I found on this trip that there, is no, there was no uh, range of accommodations. It was too cold to sleep out most of the time. So I had to sleep inside and um, used to be you'd have a low price place to stay, medium price and a high price. There's no, everything's high price now. Mm-hmm. We're high and higher. It's really a disheartening experience. People I met were great. Everybody that I got a ride from was just a wonderful person. I couldn't believe it. There was no trouble on the road. Publisher wanted me to write a full-length book about my trip. I said, I can't do it. Nothing happened except a pleasant experience. I didn't get I didn't pick I didn't get picked up by a carload of lepers and <laughs> I didn't find a convention of midgets anywhere. You know, it's just uh, one nice guy after another. You know? So when when you're telling stories about, you know, hanging out with beatniks and wobblies and jazz musicians and all of this stuff, it's it's uh you know, it's hard not to feel a nostalgia for an era that I didn't even wasn't, you know, never got to experience. And um, what what change do you think in society? What when did you start notice freedom slipping away? The mass media took over in the, in the 60s. The hippies are absolutely no comparison to what happened earlier. The beatniks, they were free. They were interesting people. They came from all aspects of society, and uh, they were tougher. And hippies, it was a middle-class fad. Mm. You know, and Time magazine ran a story about Haight-Ashbury in 1967, and everybody went to Haight-Ashbury. And they all looked alike. You know, I sound like my parents would have sounded then, but it was true. It was... Uh, it was boring. It was middle. The music was middle of the road, although now it, but it was the mass media gave it this uh, patina of uh, a glow around it. It's, you know, I like some of those people. I like some of that music, but it was uh, what might have been called in the by the beatnik square. <laughs> yeah, so. Mass media began to control all aspects of life. Everything was filtered through the the screen. And uh, that eroded a lot of freedom. And have you've seen that just accelerating since? I mean, it's interesting to, to say that y- you felt it started disappearing in the 60s because the 60s are always remembered as kind of this great era of freedom, I guess, by the mass media. Uh, but yeah. in your opinion, it was already it was already slipping away by then. Definitely, I think, um, yeah, the hippies, look, I was in Haight-Ashbury in 1965, and it was a Russian bohemian neighborhood. They had Russian restaurants, and they had uh, be a beatnik coffee shop. Rents were cheap. 
Two years later, the summer of love, that was all gone. And it was totally homogenized. There'd be one, one head shop after another. No more cheap rents, no more Russian restaurants, no more beatnik coffee shops. So it was like uh, colonizing. That's it. Mm. The hippies colonized America. In, in the sense of gentrifying where they were going? Yeah, it, it gentrified and, yeah, it became, uh, I mean, you had hippies, you had franchise restaurants, you had the interstate highway system come in, and all America was different. And you re- look at one of Ian Cutler's books, you read about the life of this golden age of tramps, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's more remote than uh, Sulawesi. That's a shame because people don't know. And I don't know how old you are, but I take it you're, you say you missed that era. So, well, I, I said it, nostal- I'm, I'm 41. So it's nostalgia for an era that I didn't experience. Yeah. But well, I know you, you have no idea. You have no idea. Hmm. The freedom. And when I was, God, when I was a kid, I thought I had missed the great days of freedom. But uh, compared to the change from my youth to now, and how do you, there's nothing. And how do you feel about, I mean, now in 2023, looking around at society, uh, you must have opinions on it in comparison. I certainly do. I think what happened is um, the way things are now, it has certainly killed um, contemporary fiction because you can't can't make this up what's going on hmm. nothing in a you put it down in a novel it'd be old hat by the time it was published but i mean your former president the, the um horrible horrible mass killings mm-hmm. i mean there's one a day in the united states yep that's can't even it's so awful and the clowns that are running for office <laughs> god i mean i i never thought that i would uh think eisenhower was a great guy <laughs> by comparison <laughs> but you consider what is available now and he was like a rock in the middle of <laughs> yeah jeez so you you feel so like you were saying that it's killed contemporary fiction just because there's nothing you can make up that's as bizarre as what's actually happening. Yeah, you could write if I was a novelist, I'd be writing historical fiction. But um you can't compete with this. It used to be in the older days, thirties, forties, and fifties particularly, the uh novel would be a portrayal, a chronicle of the society around us. But now it's all uh, it's all old hat. Yeah. If you put it in a novel. But people like me grew up, people like me with a literary bent, grew up with those novels by people like Upton St. Clair, mm-hmm. St. Clair and uh, uh, Willard Motley and... Uh, James T. Farrell, 
And no one, uh, of course, no one reads those people now. I was just reading up in Sinclair uh, the other day, actually, just the jungle, but yeah. Yeah, well, that was a great muckraking book. It's still shocking. I was just reading about Upton Sinclair losing his wife to the um, guy called the Vagabond Poet, Harry Kemp. Uh, Upton Sinclair had all these ideas about open marriage and free love. And then his wife meets Harry Kent and bang, falls from just like that. <laughs> and that uh, that ended that marriage. And it <laughs> distorted his idea about free love and open marriage for sure. It didn't work out for him. Hmm? I guess it didn't, didn't work out as planned. It didn't uh, work out after Harry Kemp made the scene. So for people today who, and I asked Ian Cutler this as well, but he wasn't particularly hopeful about it, but I want to ask you as well, for people today who are seeking any type of vestige of, of the freedom that you experienced, um, is it still possible somewhere? I mean, could you go maybe to another country uh, to be to live a kind of vagabonding life or just to live a free from the social control grid. Well, yeah, even around here, there's a lot of people living as they say, off the grid. They're up and hidden away in the bush and they're, you know, they're not, some of them are not, uh, they don't have hot electricity. And, but that's, you, to do that, your life has to narrow so much. Drifting around, leading a vagabond life? No. No. If you got deep pockets, yeah. I mean, you, I could go up to the Northwest Territories and um, wander around, but um, you'd have to be rich to spend a week on the road hmm. up there. And what about... Uh... You know, I mean, I, I I know multiple people who went on the hippie trail uh, from, you know, through Afghanistan and India in the in the 60s and early 70s. What about something like that? Do you think that's still an option? Well, you go, I've been in there a couple of times in the 2000s and um, it's great, you know, to travel around. And But uh, yeah, it's not expensive and. You never run out of things to be amazed by. Mm. But, you know, it's it's not your home. No matter how much you like it, no matter how long you stay there, it's really not uh, yours. But, yeah, you wanted to go in for a month or a year and knock around, it would be a great place to do it. Mm. Yeah, I was able to do that in the early uh 2000s but i came to the same conclusion it's you know yeah. it's 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 not my home all around india yeah on the trains yeah and trains Nepal. are great aren't they <laughs> yeah they're great um <laughs> i was never pushy enough though so because i'm not a pushy person so i'd always end up riding in between the train cars <laughs> so i wouldn't be able to get a seat everyone would push and knock each other out of the way to get on the train and get a seat but as soon as they had a seat it was, it was all so polite. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, if you had to go down to the washroom, somebody would watch your seat for you. <laughs> <laughs> or they'd, uh, you'd sit down after all the fighting and they'd have a tea service. 
I rode the train once from Delhi to uh, up to Shandergar, and he served this elegant tea service. It's incredible. Hmm. <laughs> so I'd love to go back. Yeah, I would too. I would too. Um, so maybe something like that, but it sounds, you know, it's, it's depressing to say that, that kind of this era of freedom is completely over, um, in the U S and, and Canada, but I guess that, or maybe, and, and Europe presumably, um, but that's how you feel about it. I feel that way here. I feel less than the United States. Um, cause the country's so big and we're not as, uh, politically antagonistic to each other. I mean, I could uh, walk out the door now and walk. Once I get out of the little surrounding area, I could walk uh, for days without seeing anybody. So there's that. But, you know, after a certain time, you've done that and you uh, want something else. Well, maybe the last question I want to ask then is, you know, if, if this is not possible anymore, still, I think for, for younger people or people who are just seeking f- whatever type of freedom they can get, and, and that's not necessarily, maybe tramping is not an option anymore, but, you know, what would you say just as kind of just general life wisdom also to people now? What would I say that they should do? Is that what you're uh, I guess just, how to, how to approach life. Yeah. I'm sorry, I uh, didn't hear that. Oh, I mean, just in terms of kind of your general words of wisdom for um, for people today and, and younger people in particular, uh, in terms of approach to life or how to maximize your freedom. My words of wisdom are don't pay attention to my words of wisdom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just go. Just go out the door and see what happens. Um whether you got $100 or $1,000 or $10,000, just go. Well, and there's a whole world of wonders out there, even now. So you don't want to miss it and then have regrets. But if you're the type of person who doesn't do it, you probably won't grow into the person who would regret it. No. Okay. Well, maybe that's a good spot to end on, uh, but it's been a real honor and, and privilege to speak with you. And oh, where... great to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Where can people find your books and, and more about you? And what have you been, what are the most recent things you've been working on? I'm um, collaborate. I collaborated on a book called Sandra's Speaks with a, um, writer who lives in Amsterdam called David McKinnon. Uh, The book is a um, translation of interviews that Blaise Sundrars did for um, French radio in the early 50s. Sundrars invented modern poetry. He started in 1911 or 12 writing poetry such as no one else had ever written. And uh, he was uh, an adventurer, a writer. He wrote novels and autobiographical chronicles. And he's my favorite writer. And it turns out he's uh, this David McKinnon's famous writer, a favorite writer. 
Sundar's had his left right arm blown off in the fighting in the Foreign Legion in the First World War. He traveled everywhere, and uh, he wrote these great, great books. So David and I worked on that book, and he's coming over here, and we're doing a couple presentations in the Vancouver area in regards to that book. I recommend him highly, please, Sundarar. Okay. C-E-N-D-R-A-R-S. First name, B-L-A-I-S-E. And, yeah. All right, and your books are all on, on Amazon, I'm sure. Yeah, and um, it is Ian Cutler's book. You know, that was um, a surprise. He got hold of me out of the blue, and I was uh, on one half thrilled and the other half... Uh, it was scary and embarrassing to have someone probing like that, calling up, getting in touch with people in your past. I mean, mm. think of it. You're, <laughs> what's your girlfriend from 1982 <laughs> no. going to no. say about me? You know? <laughs> Yikes. All right. Or your girlfriend from 2010, whatever. Right, right, right. <laughs> or today. <laughs> well, uh, I really appreciate taking the time to, to speak with me, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful show. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. All right. Thank you. And, and uh, again, it was an honor. I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely... Had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class, and until next time, hang in there.